0: Those of you watching and listening to this message um, online, whether it's on YouTube or Facebook, I also want to thank you for stopping by and checking out um, checking us out here at um, Fresh Vision Church in El Paso, Texas. Uh, You can get information, more information about our church at FvCELP.org. And there uh, you should be able to find our statement of faith, um, our core beliefs, our vision statement. We don't have a formal offering here at Fresh Vision Church, but we do welcome your tithes and offerings in the bo- in the back in the, in the back section and table back there. We do have a box where you can give if the Lord has put it into your heart. Uh, for those of you who are watching and listening also, you can do that through our website as well. As far as giving, we do have a PayPal link on our website and you can give there. And also if you have any prayer requests, there on our main homepage, you'll, in the bottom section, you'll find a section there where you can send any kind of message and it will get it. It'll come directly to me. And again, I'll respond as soon as possible. Um, I wanted to also mention one more thing that I talked about last week. I, I posted a, a minute 45 second video on our YouTube page about the invitation to come back to church um for those of you who watch that again i uh thank you for checking that out now i'm not you know i don't want to retract anything i say I, I said but i want you to know that um i am keeping everyone's health in mind everyone's well-being in mind um i understand and know the seriousness of the pandemic that we're currently in and you know um we are taking measures and precautions here at Fresh Vision Church. Um, so, you know, just to remind you, masks are—they're not mandatory, but we do highly suggest it, especially when you're coming into contact with anybody, talking to anybody, and also we do highly recommend social distancing. So, uh, also we highly—we do have. Um, Hand sanitizer in the back. When you do go uh, wash your hands, um, we ask you to, to wash them well and thoroughly. Uh, so, again, I just wanted to, to add that. Let us know where you're from. If you're watching, listening, let us know where you're, you're watching us from. And also, like and share the video, definitely. The best way to get these messages out or have people invite people to come. Um, is to share those messages on your own social media pages. Again, we have Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, um, Twitter. So um, definitely share what we're doing here, share these messages. So with that, I'll go ahead and uh, begin with today's message. And as many of you know, we fit, last week we finished the Gospel of Luke and throughout the past few weeks um we've been talking a lot about the cross of Christ and what that the significance of that is of that and the importance uh, the cross of Christ is to us but uh, i think that i what i wanted to do this week is just focus just a little bit more on some of the particulars on the cross of Christ um and I hope that, uh, I, think, I think in a couple weeks, possibly, we will going to begin a, a new book. But for this week and next week, there's just some things that have been stirring in my heart um, and that I just wanted to, to share with you. And I think a good place to begin with that is with this message, The Cross of Christ. And that's what I titled today's message. And we're going to be in First Corinthians chapter 1. This book. The book of First Corinthians is about how to have unity within a divided church. Paul wrote this book because there's been a lot of problems, a lot of issues that were dividing the Corinthian church at the time, and he needed to address them, and he needed to make sure they were dealt with as soon as possible, because if they weren't, the breakup of that church would have been really, I would say, devastating for the people that were there. And so, again, there were a lot of topics, a lot of things that he addressed here. But the most important, again, was to maintain unity as a church. Now, we're going to be covering two sections here. The last couple sections, chapter 1. And in the first portion of our passage this morning, Paul will take us to the cross of Christ and explain how God chose to display his love, wisdom, and power there. And in the second portion that we're going to be covering at the end here is that Paul will keep us there. He's going to keep us at the cross and remind us of not only who we are, Or who we were prior to coming to the cross, but also remind us of why God chose us into family. Now, as a kid growing up, I, many of you know, I grew up in, in South uh, San Diego, in an area called Chula Vista, California. Um, that's where, you know, I spent all my childhood and my young adulthood. That's where I met Robin in high school, at Chula Vista High School. Um, And so I I remember my dad driving us through I-5. And eventually when I started driving, I remember seeing the naval ships at 32nd Street there. And, you know, when you're young, you just see these ships that you know are big, but you really don't have an idea how big they were. It wasn't until I was in the Marine Corps, until they were deploying us to uh, Kuwait in the January of 2003 that I was able to get an up close. That was the first time I got up close to how big these ships grow, uh, were, actually were. And I remember thinking as I drew nearer and nearer to the ships, as I drew closer and closer to those ships, how much they grew and they grew. And I was amazed and how big they got. And as I got closer, I remember thinking, man, I seem to be shrinking as I'm drawing near to those ships. Well, that's what drawing close to something awesome, something great will do. It'll make you feel smaller and smaller by comparison. Well, this is precisely the dynamic that occurs in our own hearts, in your own hearts, when you draw near to the starkest, most awesome exhibition of God's power, glory, and wisdom. The cross of Jesus Christ, and it's this that Paul hopes Christians reading this letter will understand in this passage. So, before we get into God's word, let's ask Him to speak to us this morning. Lord Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have us here right now in this place. You have this behind that, and we just want to follow Your will, and we we know that that purpose is great and it's good lord so let us forget about all the things that are happening in our own personal world lord and just concentrate on what's going on here what's going on now lord speak to us powerfully or do want to hear from you and and know you more and draw near to you lord Show us your majesty. Show us your glory, Lord, through these words. Soften our hearts and minds. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. And we'll be starting out in verse 18. And the word of God says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. In these eight verses that we just read, Paul put forth, puts forth the essential contrast between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. In verse 18, he provides the thesis sentence, which sums up the point of the entire first paragraph. Paul's thesis affirms that there are only two kinds of people in this world, those in the process of perishing and those in the process of being saved. Those in the process of perishing view the cross as dumb, as foolish. It doesn't, there's no point to it. But those in the process of being saved view the cross as a display of God's power. Now, in the first century, crucifixion was viewed with universal disgust and was considered improper not polite to even mention it in the company of others it just wasn't talked about the way most people saw it the death on the cross was disgustingly stupid and in many ways still seen that way today rc sproul said this The most obscene symbol in human history is the cross. Yet, in its ugliness, it remains the most eloquent testimony to human dignity. But as Paul describes for Christians who are saved, the cross is seen as God's powerful instrument of their salvation. Paul's intent here was for the Christians at Corinth to view the cross as the highest exhibition of God's love, wisdom, and strength. Now in verse 19, Paul supplies the scriptural support for his thesis. His scriptural proof comes from Isaiah 29:14 in which the prophet is proclaiming God's intentions to judge Israel for her superficial and hypocritical religion. This judgment, he says, would be to destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Paul there was saying that the message of the cross does exactly that. The cross is the power of God that obliterates worldly wisdom of leaders and all forms of human intellectualism. Spurgeon said, Many men know a great deal and all and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool, but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Verses 20 through 25, Paul then begins to explain why the majority of the people of the world reject the cross-centered gospel and why the Corinthians should nevertheless believe it. In verse 20, Paul is speaking to the wise philosopher, the religious teacher, and the debater. Now, those three people, the philosopher, the religious teacher, and the debater, at the time they were seen by Jews and Greeks as the professional experts. You had an issue or a problem, you would go to them and they would help solve it because they were... They knew what they were talking about. He mentions them in order to make the point that God made all their combined wisdom foolish. In the next verse, Paul states that the reason God did this was because they refused to acknowledge his wisdom. They refused to acknowledge God's wisdom in using the cross of Jesus as his plan for salvation. However, for those that accepted the foolishness of the gospel, God was pleased to save those who believed, who believed it when they heard it preached. Why? Because he takes pleasure in, accompl- in accomplishing our salvation in a way no one would have expected. You see the wisdom. Of the world says that because nothing is free, everything has a price. Salvation had to be earned, has to be earned through hard work, pious living, and submitting to those in authority, the religious hierarchy, or, you know, submitting to those in political power. this kind of wisdom is still seen today within many other uh, religions and Christian denominations. Not just by its leaders, but also by its followers. But the simple fact is this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says that salvation, that our salvation, a Christian salvation, is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's God's gift to you. It's not a reward for the good things that we've done. You haven't earned it. It's a gift. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that simple. And since God is happy to do it this way, it offends the height of human wisdom. Paul expands up upon this a little more by explaining how this led the religious Jews and the educated Gentiles to reject God's salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, he mentions that the Jews asked for signs. In Paul's day, we talked about this a lot and recovered the gospel of Luke, but the Jewish world was looking for the arrival of, Messiah, of a Messiah that would do more spectacular works than others. However, when Jesus Christ was among them, they not only refused to recognize the signs that he performed, but they also refused to acknowledge the validity of the greatest sign, his greatest sign of all, his resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross was a stumbling block for them because they couldn't accept a Messiah who was crucified as a criminal. Paul then mentions that the Greeks seek wisdom. See, back then, and in many ways, again, the way things are now, the Greek culture, our Western culture too, values the pursuit of wisdom usually expressed in high academic philosophical terms. So the notion that they could attain divine wisdom from an uneducated, crucified Jewish carpenter was utter foolishness for them to even consider. He then says in verse 24, Paul, that is, yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What he's now saying here is that regardless of whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, regardless of their racial or ethnic background, regardless of their economic status, regardless of all that, When the Spirit of God touches, convicts, and regenerates a person, they will find in the cross of Jesus God's wisdom and power. I like what Warren Wisby said about this verse. Those who have been called by God's grace and who have responded by faith realize that Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Not the Christ of the manger or the temple or the marketplace, but the Christ of the cross. It is in the death of Christ that God has revealed the foolishness of man's wisdom and the weakness of man's power. Unquote. Paul then ends, Paul then ends the reason for, or then tells us the reason for this in verse 25. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul is suggesting that if, and again, that's just a big if, it was it was possible for God to be foolish and weak, his foolishness and his weakness would still overwhelm us. But the fact of the matter is this. In reality, there's neither foolishness nor weakness with God. What he's saying here is that what seems to be foolish on God's part in the eyes of men, is actually wiser than men at their very best. Also, what seems to be weakness on God's part, in the eyes of men, turns out to be stronger than anything that men produce. Now, before I gave my life to the Lord, someone once tried to share the gospel with me by showing me the cross. Showed me a simple cross, or yeah, and, and they asked me what I thought and felt when I saw it. And I replied by saying that I thought the cross was nothing but a Christian symbol, and that when I saw it, I felt sadness and a sadness at seeing the images of Jesus nailed to it after he had explained what the cross truly meant and what it was really about and what God did and why Jesus was, had to suffer, I remember thinking that I'd never heard the cross explained in that way. Now, I, I never, at that time, I, I didn't give my life to the Lord. I was still young and you know, I had my own ideas and, and all that, so pretty stubborn. But nevertheless, his explanation left a lasting impression on me. And I never forgot about that conversation. Although it took a few years to connect how this new perspective personally applied to me, God revealed the truth of the cross to me through the message he was preaching, through the message that he was sharing with me. Again, it left a lasting, lasting impression on me. God revealed truth to me that day. Now through these verses that we just covered, I want to share with you some important truths about the cross of Jesus Christ with the hope that also maybe some of you may gain a new perspective. First of all, you need to know that the cross of Christ or the cross of Jesus is the highest exhibition of God's love, wisdom, and power. The Bible tells us that God exhibited his love in a way that no one ever could. Romans 5.8 says, But God proves His own love for us that while we were still sinners, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. God loved you so much that He sent His Son to not only die for you, but to also free you from the bondage of sin. How amazing is that? Can you see? the exhibition of God's love in that. Secondly, the wisdom of God is fully exhibited in the cross. His infinite wisdom. In His infinite wisdom, God designed a plan that in no way compromised His holiness or left His righteousness unfulfilled. Listen. To how Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And let the Lord speak to you through these verses. There Paul said, In him we have redemption through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. And thirdly, God exhibited His power on the cross. Again, we just saw how God exhibited his love, God exhibited his wisdom, and now God exhibited his power on the cross. If you want to see God in all his power, take a look at Jesus Christ dying on the cross. It's at the cross that God, in Christ, conquered death, He conquered hell and he conquered sin. And it's there that he purchased us. He purchased all of us. The glory, life, and freedom we could ever attain and more. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, It's already been done. Here's a great quote from John Stott. When we look at the cross, we see the justice, love, wisdom, and power of God. It's not easy to decide which is the most luminously revealed, which is the most luminously revealed, whether the justice of God in judging sin or the love of God in bearing the judgment in our place. Or the wisdom of God in perfecting, perfectly combining the two. Or the power of God in saving those who believe. For the cross is equally an act and therefore a demonstration of God's justice, love, wisdom, and power. The cross assures us that this God is the reality within behind and beyond the universe, unquote. Now another truth about the cross of Jesus is that it's God's plan of salvation. It's His beautiful plan of salvation. None of us could have ever Come up with a plan of sal- the same plan of salvation that God did. In our own wisdom, we would have made it much more con- complex and probably unfair. But God designed sal- a salvation free for all, available to all, by sending his son to die for our sins. John 3.16 tells us this. Also, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 26, in the death of Christ, God displayed his own sheer genius in masterminding a plan of salvation whereby he remained both just and the justifier. Meaning, Jesus' sacrificial death satisfied God's wrath And displays his justice in justifying sinners who have faith in Jesus. He's just and the justifier. I'm certain that if we had a million lifetimes to think and create a means by which a holy God would accept a sinful man we could never come up with a cross. Only the inscrutable wisdom of God could have thought of it. 18th century preacher, William Romaine, wrote this. I quote, Consider your state. You are a pardoned sinner. Not under the law, but under grace. Freely. Fully saved from the guilt of all your sins. There is none to condemn God having justified you. He sees you in his son, washed you in his blood, clothed you in his righteousness, and he embraces him and you, the head and the members, with the same affection. Unquote. One final truth I mentioned here about the cross of Jesus is that it's unbiased and impartial. The only place anyone can go, anyone and everyone can go and be fully loved, accepted, healed, and forgiven is there at the cross. When someone comes to the cross they won't be discriminated against. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 says, "For there is no favoritism with God." It doesn't matter to God who you are, where you came from, or what you've done or haven't done. At the cross, all are welcomed. All are embraced and all can be forgiven. When Peter realized that God had revealed himself to a non-Jewish Roman soldier in a powerful way, he said this in, in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So my question to you is this. What does the cross of Jesus mean to you? When you think of the cross, just like I did at one time, I was asked what, what I thought of the cross. What do you think when you see or think about the cross? How you answer that question will determine if you're in the process of perishing or in the process of being sanctified.
1: Allow me to share another
0: brilliant thought from John Stott. I quote, and I quote, I could never myself, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I turn to that lonely, twisted, twisted, Tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hand and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God's forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain, he entered all world of flesh and blood, and death. Unquote. So again, that's my challenge to you is to whether it's here or whether you go when you go back home, turn off this video, is what does the cross mean to you? How do you see it? And by the time I'm done here, I hope that, yeah, you will have gotten a new perspective. That it's not the way the world sees. It's not the way your friends describe it to you. It's a display of God's power and wisdom. He didn't have to do it that way. He didn't have to send His Son to die on the cross. He could have just left you, left us, left humanity to perish, to just die in our own sinfulness. But he didn't. He cared for us. He cares for each and every single one of you. And he doesn't want you to die in your sin. He wants you, he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to draw near to him. And the only way that can happen is through the cross of Christ. So again, I hope that you answer that question and you'll be able to find out what that cross means to you, that you will accept it and believe and be saved. Well, there's one more section that I want us to go through. So let's go back to our passage here and, and read it. And that's going to be, We'll be picking up in verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became, who became wisdom from God for us, All righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the, wo- let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In this last section of chapter one, Paul defends his claim that the message of the gospel is centered on the cross by reminding them, reminding the Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians, who they were before accepting the message of the cross. He begins by taking the Christians at Corinth back to their spiritual roots by reminding them that they weren't wise, mighty or noble, when God saved them. God called them not because of what they were, but in spite of what they were. The Corinthian church was compromised primarily of ordinary people, ordinary people like you and I, who were terrible sinners like you and I. Yet. They were not too sinful for God to reach and save them. Paul's underlying message here is that God prefers the losers of the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God sees Christians as losers. Rather, when God calls people into his family, He intentionally chooses those whom the world rejects. He prefers the weak over the strong, the forgotten over the famous, and the nobodies over the somebodies. He starts with the people that the world chooses last and actually prefers to choose the weak, Instead of the strong, imagine a group of children about to pick sides for a game of kickball. Maybe some of you can relate to this. We know the drill, don't we? The best two players are selected as captains. They, in turn, will be the best players, will pick the best players they can for their teams. But just suppose. The two who are always picked last are given a chance as captains. Suppose a game unfolds as an exercise in having fun, not just winning the game. Suppose the teams are delighted in having captains who can't kick or field well, but just love to play and that love because, because, Infectious. Never will that happen, will it? In the world of team sports, even at a playground level, we want those who can perform. Well, guess what? God loves to pick the ones picked last. Well, in verses 27 and 28, Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth, of why God chose them. And here's how the New Living Translation puts those verses. God chose the things of the world. God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world Things counted as nothing at all, and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Even mentioning it in that translation, I hope it makes a little more sense. But isn't that beautiful? Let me illustrate. Give you another illustration of what that means. When the world throws a party, the beautiful people are always invited. They rent a nightclub and hire a security team to keep the ordinary people out. Only the in crowd makes it past the rope line. Helicopters circle overhead and the paparazzi strain to get a picture that they can sell to TMZ or one of the other tabloid online magazines. It's all about who shows up and who is wearing what kind of dress. And what kind of outfit trying to match this man with this woman. That's how the world throws a party. But God does it totally different. God chooses those that have nothing to brag about. God chooses people that no one would invite to a party. He includes those who would be normally excluded, those who would be outside the rope lines, those who maybe aren't dressed the finest, those who aren't the skinniest, those who aren't the most beautiful, those who have ragged clothes and torn jeans and a smelly t-shirt and, you know, hairs all knotted and no makeup. He chooses those people. He does this so that he can subvert, invert, and convert human values. He does this to shame the wise, the strong, and to bring to nothing the things that are impressive to our world. Why does God choose those that have nothing to brag about? Well, Paul answers this in verse 29. So that no one may boast in his presence. In other words, God determined to choose despised ones, those who embrace the foolishness of the cross, so that no one can boast about his or her human accomplishments or position in his presence. God wants believers to constantly recognize that they have nothing to brag about before him. Rather, they're completely indebted to him. And finally, in verses thirty to thirty-one, Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth of all they had in Jesus. In Christ, believers possess the wisdom of God and received all, they received all the benefits that come from the cross. And he states three of them here. Believers have been given God's righteousness, meaning they've been made right with him, right within themselves, and right with other people. Believers have received God's sanctification, meaning they've been set apart and made holy, both personally and practically. And believers have received God's redemption. Meaning God, through Christ, has purchased the believer from the power of sin. Therefore, because of these benefits, Christians can properly boast, not in their own achievements, but in the Lord. Paul references Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 to show that those who have nothing to brag can boldly brag about what God did for them through the cross. If you've ever wondered what kind, of God, what kind of people God chooses to be part of his family, these verses here help answer that question. Now, I have no doubt that there are a lot of people who believe that, or maybe you do, who believe that God couldn't possibly choose them or choose you. Maybe some of you have struggled with some of these thoughts. If so, if you struggle with these thoughts, let me point out what verses 26 through 31 tells us about the sort of people God chooses. God intentionally chooses the losers of the world. Again, don't misunderstand me. The kind of losers I'm talking about isn't the kind of loser someone calls another person to put them down. The losers I'm, ta- I'm talking about are those who've been rejected by the world. God deliberately chooses the forgotten of the world and he prefers the company of the poor. He loves to, sa- to save the uneducated, the foolish, the addicted, the broken the downcast and the imprisoned. In short, he specializes in saving those who the world counts as nothing. A simple, uneducated, un and clumsy believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior who, and, and who faithfully and humbly follows his Lord is immeasurably wiser let me repeat that. That kind of person is immeasurably, immeasurably wiser than the most brilliant PhD that's out there who, scops, who scoffs at the gospel, who laughs at the gospel and says that is nothing but foolishness. Why? Because a simple believer knows forgiveness, knows love, grace, life, and hope. On the other hand, the unbelieving PhD knows nothing beyond his books, his own mind, and his own experience. God also chooses those that have nothing to brag about. Everybody who's somebody in the world typically has something to brag about. The wealthy tend to brag about how much money they have or how many toys they have. Politicians tend to brag about what they've done or what they plan to do. Entertainers and musicians tend to brag about their awards and their popularity. And the religious often tend to brag about the things, all the things, They've done for God. God, however, prefers to call those who don't have any of these things to brag about so that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. As God continues to transform you into the image of Christ, your life will echo the words written in Galatians 6, verse 14. I'll never boast about anything Except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. And lastly, God chooses those who have plenty, who have plenty of sin and weakness. The Bible is full of stories of how God chose adulterers. Conmen, prostitutes, murderers, thieves, and the physically disabled to do great things for him. Physically disabled, yeah, well, who was Mephibosheth. If you don't know who Mephibosheth is, look up his name and, you'll, and read about his story and you'll see how God used him. This ought to convince you that he, he chose them Nothing, nothing you've ever done in your past will keep him from choosing you. So again, why does God choose people like you and me? Because of his love and for his glory. To be a blessing to others and to share the love he's given you with those around you you see god chooses people who once had a messed up life in order to show others who currently have messed up lives that in jesus there's redemption forgiveness hope and peace in 1st timothy chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 paul wrote Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, God can and will use you in spite of your past. You just have to be willing. You just have to be open. You just have to allow Christ to come in and enter your heart. My question to you this morning, to those who are here, to those who are watching and listening, again, is what is your personal view of the cross? If your view of the cross is the power of God to those being saved? Don't allow the wisdom of the world to confuse the truth that God has revealed to you by His Spirit. Keep in mind the words found in First Corinthians chapter three, verse nineteen: "For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God." However, if the cross seems intellectually foolish and too simplistic and you would rather have it your way. You would rather think that salvation ought to be something that needs to be earned or there's, there's got to be other ways to God than this passage ought to serve as a warning to you. For my thoughts, and this is God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. So my hope is that you'll let go. Let go of your intellectual pride and come to the cross with an open heart and mind so that you will not have to perish for all of eternity. The last half of John 3.16, it says, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So if there's anyone here, anyone listening, anyone watching, I want to invite you today, right now, to come to the cross of Jesus Christ and accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. So if you're ready to do that, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head and pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead. I now repent of my sins and turn from them. And I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Now fill me with the Holy Spirit so that He may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you prayed that with all sincerity, I want to welcome you to the family of God. You're no longer a sinner. The chains of sin and death have been broken. And now you've been set free. Now you're a child of God. If you prayed that, let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to pray with you. We want to lead you in your next steps. Before we close here at a church, I want to thank those who are watching and listening. I hope that this message, again, has blessed you. I hope that you have grown. I hope that you've seen the importance of the cross. And more importantly, I hope that you've given your life to Christ. So, friends... Brothers and sisters in El Paso, Texas, and around our country and around the world, thank you and goodbye and farewell.